Anthony, regarding to uh, notifications, like I said, I discovered a coworker had it uh, through informal channels, and I should have been notified Monday morning that I most likely was in close contact with this guy. But they keep calling, they keep doing the HIPAA laws, going, "Oh, we can't tell anybody." But I think that the, the, the university is doing that on purpose to keep panic down or keep people from going. Yeah. Out hey, from, Dan. Uh, here's the news: HIPAA laws don't apply apply during the pandemic. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that right? Absolutely oh, wow. not. HIPAA laws do not wow. apply during a pandemic. So if you were in close contact with someone that tested positive, it's their duty to tell you and everybody else that that person was in contact with that you were in contact with a positive person. You should be tested immediately. Well, that's very interesting. Wow. Interesting, yeah. And if they didn't do that, they're remiss. Because I'm running a hospital where we're doing... You know, we're testing every employee every 14 days and every patient that comes into the hospital. And I have literally um, 200 people that are looking at these results and doing contact tracing and notifying people, you know, that if a person tests positive in a certain area, then everybody in that area is notified immediately. It has nothing to do with HIPAA. During a pandemic, the rules change totally change you know you you know they have no right to withhold that information from anybody hmm. well, you see, this is 14 days and nothing in connecticut fk employees it doesn't matter what department i was keeping laundry kitchen healthcare. what to test every once a week every week exactly uh, yeah exactly i mean nursing yeah nursing and, home so here's the here's the new thing that they're coming up with now yeah. Now the new thing is that because the you know because the virus because people you know that are positive it's heating up right so now yeah. all of a sudden they're telling you oh you know we don't have the reagents for the for the rapid test we don't have this we don't have that and you know my attitude is you know what figure it out it's not like it's not out there people need to be tested and people that are positive need to have contact tracing and Everybody people knows. need to know positive Sunday person positive, everybody in the building knows. Exactly. That's exactly what should happen. That's exactly what should happen. And if and if it's not and if it's not happening, it's a crime. Yeah. And when everybody knows, whatever the clues whatever clues that person have to be witness, you have to have two negative before they come back. That's exactly right. You have to have two negative. That's yeah. That's the CDC. That's the CDC guideline for testing protocol. There's also a symptom protocol, which is not good. So the testing protocol is is that if you're exposed, you get the test, and then you have to test negative twice, and the twice. second test has to be greater than 24 hours after your first. Wow. Just to add to that, I'm sorry, Father. No, it's fine. Go ahead. Just to add to that, Columbia's policy is, well, you can come back 10 days after your first symptoms because you're not going to be uh, contagious. And I said, well, shouldn't I take a test? And they go, no, you don't need to take a test. So I, I thought that was crazy. No, so I'm sorry, Father Chris, but that's BS. No, it's fine. It's important. Yeah, yeah, that's BS. So what I instituted, what I instituted in the medical center where we are is so the CDC has two different protocols. One is the the symptomatology protocol and the other is the testing protocol. Yes, yes. The symptom protocol is you're exposed, 
you're symptomatic or you're not symptomatic, it doesn't matter. You quarantined and that's on you based on how much sick time you have because they're not going to pay you for that, which is ridiculous. Because if you catch it at work, this was the big fight I had in my institution. The big fight I had was you caught it at work. It's a workman's comp case. It should not be on you and your sick time. But I lost that. And whatever it is, it is. So what I instituted was, okay, fine. Someone's exposed. You want to sit them out for 14 days. They take their sick time. That's fine. However... In order to come back, you have to have two negative tests greater than 24 hours apart. And that's it. And if you don't, you sit out. And unfortunately, we've had a multitude of employees that have been positive for 40, 60, 70 days. Now, you know, what do you do with that? You know, the problem is then you get this disinformation especially from the CDC that says if you test, you know, in the nose and you get a positive result like 30, 40 days out, oh, you're only testing like, you know, portions of the virus and they're not contagious. So my attitude was, and again, sorry, Father Chris, is I said, you know what? I said, here's the story, man. I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to line all you administrators up in a line. I'm going to get those people that you say that are we're not we're culturing virus out of their nose but they're not really contagious i'm going to have them spit in your face and then i want to see what happens like within like a week i said if you're willing to do that then i'm a player no problem none of them would take me up on it i kind of physician exactly <laughs> you, have to take, you have to you have to put your co-worker if you in a way if you're positive doesn't matter so no, the, the problem is, is they think everybody's stupid, you know, so it's like, you know, I went to, you know, I went to medical school, I busted my butt for years, I took a vir- virology course, I understand the fact that if you're getting virus out of someone 60 days later, in something like this, which is so contagious, it's unbelievable, that what, all of a sudden, that you're telling me I'm culturing pieces of virus that are not contagious anymore? I'm not willing to take that bet. So, I mean, you know, that's the thing. And, it, and it, you know, so, you know, the administration of these hospitals and, and all these other places, you know, they're looking out for their bottom line. That's all it is. You know, and it's unfortunate because they're, you, what, what happens is, is that, you know, they, they, they're exposing and you know they're they're basically causing issues and more problems with you know the patients and the people and anybody that's that's involved with you know this situation it's ridiculous you know? we'll give you a, a little, little experience here so saturday morning about uh, 4 a.m i wake up coughing oh god sweating, and i'm like oh, I gotta be, are you kidding me here so I went Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon for a test, came back negative. Go on Wednesday for a second test, just to be sure. Yeah. Because, you know, Wednesday going home to my parents, they're right. both in the seventies. I it's, can't risk I forbid, you know, so I'm and no. be careful with this stuff. No, right, you know, I exactly. I mean the only the only you know, the only other issue like fortunately it's not happening in the private sector, but it's happening in the 
in you know in the government with you know in the in the VA hospitals the DOD where now all of a sudden you know weirdly enough like we didn't learn anything from the surge and everything else it's like all of a sudden now it's like oh no we you know we don't have the resources to do the rapid tests anymore we're running out of reagents we're running out of this I had this huge fight today with these people about the fact that let me get this straight so we've been testing everybody to come into the hospital now. Now you're telling me you don't have the reagents, you don't have this, you don't have that. I mean, I don't get it. I mean, the government has, you know, unbelievable amounts of money. And you can't get the reagents to test these people. And you're telling me I'm limited to 10 patients a day and 10 people a day in the hospital that, you know, for testing. And, and then we have to just suck it up and like see these patients you know, when we're doing high risk procedures on them, I mean, no, I said, that's not happening. I said, so figure it out. Give me an algorithm. If you can't give it to me, then it's reportable. And I have no problem reporting that because I am not sending pay people, not employees, not anybody in to play medical Russian roulette with this stuff. Sorry. Hey, we're going to talk about some of this stuff tonight, actually. So we'll get into it again after we pray. Let's, uh, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy yes, Spirit. Yes. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So to pick up where we left off with um, talking about uh, COVID and some of the issues, as we all heard, and I think we're grateful for the news is that we have a couple of vaccines, if not two or three, coming out uh, in the next few weeks. So we are definitely grateful for that. What we have to be careful about, fellas, when it comes to these, is where do they come from in terms of the cell lines? Now, we know, for example, that the varicella vaccine for chickenpox and the MMR vaccine, both of them derive from almost 60 years ago, aborted fetal cell lines. So the question becomes then, is taking a vaccine that comes from that cell line, cooperation with evil, namely cooperation with abortion, are we betraying our pro-life position if a person takes the Varicella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, or if one of the other vaccines, Moderna's, I think it's a question mark, or AstraZeneca's, about where the cell lines come from with the creation. I'm not sure myself. Pfizer, I know, does not. I'm not sure about the other ones that are coming out um, with this. So to properly adjudicate this, what we have to do is go back to the first week of class and look at the principles of cooperation with evil. This is very, very important. Because if we get this wrong, we can make some serious mistakes in terms of our own health, and the health of the common good. So remember now, when it comes to cooperation with evil, the first principle we look at is the cooperation material or formal. Now remember, formal cooperation is you agree with the evil being done. That's always wrong, obviously. So if it's formal, the debate discussion ends right there. Wrong. However, the issue is a person who does not agree with the evil, then it becomes material 
cooperation. The material is, I know it's wrong, but in some way, I feel I'm taking part or cooperating with the evil. So if it's material, what's the next stage? The next stage, is my cooperation immediate or immediate? If it's immediate, that means my cooperation is essential for the evil being done. Without my taking part in it, this evil could not take place. In almost every case, immediate cooperation is formal cooperation. To be so close to an evil that without your help, it couldn't happen, means you are in some way immediately, formally cooperating. We make a distinction only because it is possible that a person could be immediately cooperating with evil under duress. So for example, someone carjacks your car with you in it and at gunpoint tells you, go into the bank, rob the bank. We are driving the car. So you're immediately cooperating, but under duress. So it's not formal material. But so our situation though, looking at the vaccine issue is material and is immediate. Nothing we're doing here is directly contributing to the carrying out of any kind of an evil being done. So material and immediate. The next question is, is the evil being cooperated in, is it proximate or is it remote? So for example, the receptionist who works at Planned Parenthood is in proximate cooperation because she works right there. She takes phone calls, makes appointments, makes referrals, she's proximate. The cleaning crew that comes in at night to clean the hospital when this happens or Planned Parenthood are remotely cooperating with evil. There's a distance that's there. So proximate means it's close to the evil. Remote means it's kind of separated from the evil. Now, regard to Varicella and MMR, in 1965, labs in Japan used cells from aborted fetuses to create the cell lines that are still used today for the development of those vaccines. There were no abortions being done right now today to provide us with cell lines. They derived 55 years ago from those cells. The cooperation, therefore, is material, it's immediate, and it's very remote. So some moralists will say there is no cooperation at all with evil there because of the incredible distance between the evil of abortion and the actual act being done. This is very important. There are people today, good Catholics, who refuse to have their children vaccinated because they believe by doing so, they're cooperating with abortion. That is not what is happening. And parents have a responsibility to their children and the common good to get their children vaccinated. 
This is essential. We have seen, for the first time in many years, an outbreak of measles because parents are not getting their kids vaccinated. So, that being said, if there are options for a vaccine, where one is derived from fetal cell lines and one is not derived from fetal cell lines, we should always use the one not derived from fetal cell lines. So if there's an option for the Moderna one or the Pfizer one, and if Moderna has fetal cell lines and Pfizer does not, go with the Pfizer one. If you can choose, if you choose make, make a choice. Again, I'm not sure we're going to know where, which, which corporation produced the vaccine. But if, if you know about it, as far as I know, Pfizer does not have any cooperation at all with, uh, with this. But it's critical because a lot of people today operate and they mean well. They really do. They're not bad people, but they just simply are afraid that by doing this, they're cooperating with evil. Gentlemen, most of your parish priests don't know this distinction. And they could advise somebody in a wrong way. At my first parish, Pastor was a good man, but he invited somebody to the parish to speak about, this is proven to be, to be false, to speak about the connection between vaccines and autism, which is completely and totally debunked. It is not true. It doesn't happen. But the pastor invited someone there and had her speak in the church. Now, again, these are mistakes that should not be made, but it comes from not having a good grasp of basic moral principles. This is not rocket science. This is not surgery. It's just simple stuff, basic Catholic principles. So it's very important we get this. Any questions about any of that stuff that's not clear or? Father, um, what about some of the treatments that are being developed now? Uh, for example, President Trump, when he was in the hospital, when he had COVID, was treated with, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it was something derived from fetal tissue. Right, right. Yeah. So again, it depends upon how how long ago was that first derived? Was it was it last year, or was it you know twenty five years ago? So again, it depends upon how much of a distance is there, because the remote proximate distinction is very important. I mean, remote cooperation with evil separates you pretty distinctly from evil action being done. Approximately means you're actually really close to the evil, which is a whole different moral calculus. So again, I don't know the, the exact, um, with Trump's, uh, the, that medication, I don't know the um, where that comes from originally, but it is problematic for sure. Anybody else? That's a good point, George. Father. Yeah. So, say 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 we wind up with COVID, or we're on the we think we might gonna get come in contact with someone, and we go to get the the, the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Is it a mortal sin if we don't do the research where that that came from? No, no, it's not because it'd be very hard for you to figure that to go through all of the steps of being able to figure that out. And again, my understanding is these these uh, fetal cell lines probably are the same kind of distance that the varicella. MMR vaccine probably is from. 
So I don't, my understanding at least, is this is not like a happened yesterday kind of a thing. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think you're under any kind of moral obligation beyond what is, you know, reasonable to, um, to figure out where this comes from, where the vaccine comes from. And again, I mean, you're not, you're not um, cooperating with this, you know, in a, in a way of actually encouraging it. So I would not be, um, don't think there's a real need for a serious, you know, um, research into that. So all things that are very timely, fellas, for sure. Father? Yeah. Will the church make any kind of uh, announcement as to what is? Well, the church is already, well, see again, even bishops make this mistake. Bishop Strickland from uh, from Tyler, Texas, where I like very much, Strickland, what Strickland said, you know, we should not be um, using vaccines because they may come from abortive fetal cell lines. And I'm saying, Your Excellency, that's not Catholic teaching. It's not, it's not correct. You know, if these cell lines are not anytime recent, you know, recently, then there's nothing wrong here. But again, in our, in, in our strong will against abortion, and it should be strong against abortion, we're so careful about this that we don't want to be, uh, as one person put it, injecting ourselves with the culture of death. And I think it's strong, frankly. But I understand where they're coming from. So a person who has dedicated their life to the pro-life cause and to pro-life, you know, um, issues, I understand a person's concern. At the same time, that does not then give a person a reasonable um, avenue for rejecting what is science, what is scientific and what is not cooperation with evil in a serious, proximate way. Okay. Hey, Father Chris, can I just yeah. make one yeah, comment? Yeah, yeah, please. So the, yes, the re, so the Regeneron product that, that Trump received when he had COVID, which is a monoclonal antibody, uh, you know, cocktail, um, there are two schools of thought. Some think that uh, the early the early type, the early actually forms of treatment were, were done from old cell lines, which were from fetuses but the new cell lines are not the recon dna technology and um it, it's not really from that anymore so um you know you, you just gotta you gotta weigh the the pluses and the minuses when it comes to this Absolutely. well that's, that's a good point Anthony. you know that's that's another thing it it completely would make it a lot easier if these vaccines that in the past have used you know aborted fetal cell line were able to do what regenerin did and use other cell lines not derived from fetus. That completely eliminates the moral problem. That so that would be so much easier. That could be the case. Yeah. Good. So tonight, fellow, we're looking at a couple of interesting topics. So we're going to look at surgery and organ transplants. So again, Anthony and, and John, I invite your your um, taking part in this. If anything that's wrong or it's not clear or is not um, Correct, please just step in and uh, make a comment if I say anything that's completely off, off base here tonight. I appreciate your um, stepping in if I say anything stupid, which, you know, may very well happen. No, um, I think you should go to medical school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, looking at the issue of, of surgery and organ transplants. So, regarding surgery, 
one of the main principles to be aware of is the principle of totality, right? Totality, T-O-T-A-L-I-T-Y, totality. What totality means, simply put, is the parts of a physical entity are ordained for the good of the whole. The parts of a physical entity are ordained for the good of the whole. So that in practice means the removal of a diseased limb, the removal of a diseased organ, there's nothing morally wrong with that. If, it, if the person is going to survive because you're removing something which is diseased. So the removal of a limb or an organ is a physical evil. You're losing you know, a limb, which is not good, obviously. It's not a, not a good thing. But there's no moral evil that's, that's going on here. Even the case of mutilation. Mutilation is a morally neutral act it is this mutilation is defined as the removal of an organ or suppression of its function so in the case of removing a gangrenous limb a diseased appendix even a wisdom tooth being pulled out in some sense is a type of mutilation in our common parlance, mutilation is always spoken of in a negative. This is a case where you don't want to use that term. The people in the common, they'll say, what are you talking about? It's terrible. But for in moral theology, understanding it, it, it generally means moving, moving part of the body that is, uh, that is diseased. There's an exception to that. Go ahead, John. So when you do a vasectomy, Mm -hmm. uh, or you divide a fallopian tube. That's technically called mutilation. Right. And it's not um, um, uh, technically, um, um, what's the word I want to use? Uh, uh, Necessary. No, that's no, technically not, not uh, um, um, uh, I'm locking on um, the happens when you get old uh, it's it's not technically um, uh, oh, what therapeutic no it's not technically uh, uh, um, prevention of of of, 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 uh, of uh, not it's not the same as, as using a condom or whatever right. what what do you call that again that's the words. Contraceptive? Contraceptive. It's not the same as contraception. So vasectomy and, and division of fallopian tube is technically mutilation. Oh, it's not contraception technically, right. even though you get contraception from it. So you're, so you're um, one step ahead of me, John. My next notes here actually say the one, problem, one situation that does not apply is generative organs. Right. So you can't have this happen. Correct. So you're right. A vasectomy tubal ligation right. it does not uh, apply in that situation because those things are considered to be, be uh, a sterilizing function and unlike an appendix or a kidney or um, a lung even being okay removed, with those those are all good things right but the generative organs are not simply for the good of the person they're also for going beyond the person 
there's they have a social they have a social aspect to them exactly that's, what, that's why exactly. we can't do it yeah right so that is that is where we have an issue now that being said there are times when there needs to be a removal if it is diseased of a generative organ so for example the removal of a cancerous uterus well the uterus that they remove is cancerous so when it comes so I've, to done, things, I've done hundreds of vasectomies in the old days before there were uh, really good antibiotics <clears throat> if you were going to do a prostate operation a complication of prostate operation which was a common complication was epididymitis which was a which could be very uh, debilitating and leave, leave the patient in the hospital for a week or two days two weeks after the after a prostate operation or complicate the prostate operation so he would do a vasectomy before the operation in order to prevent a disease not to sterilize the patient yeah and we're, talking about, we're talking about guys who were 70 and 80 oh, that's a whole different usually. movie you know yeah. and it's a whole so so you can do vasectomies but they have to be for special reasons and right. special circumstances right to go back to the classic case of the cancerous uterus and double effect analysis here obviously the first principle we look at with double effect is is this action intrinsically evil there is nothing intrinsically evil about removing no. the disease organ the second principle is is the sterilization which is the evil thing the intended thing it is not no. does the person's uh, return to health proceed directly from being sterilized Yes. No. no, it doesn't, because the person's being sterilized doesn't create doesn't create a person. Being sterilized is is a outside. It's foreseen, but not intended. The person's good health doesn't proceed from being sterilized. Okay. Directly. Okay. And the fourth principle is: is this proportionate in terms of is it proportionate to the person's health? The answer is yes, it is. Now, the other issue here that complicates it further is: what if the woman is pregnant and has a cancerous uterus or some kind of cancer ovarian cancer or something of that nature and this again this is where double effect analysis is very important and the same principles apply because the unfortunate death of the fetus by the removal of the uterus does not return the mother to good health it's simply the fact of the uterus being removed the fetus's death does not directly return her to health it's indirectly because it's not you know it's we're seeing but not intended but it is not the death of the child does not directly return the mother to health everyone see the distinction It's very very important does everyone get where i'm coming from yes all right if there's not please please stop me now let's say for example the doctor says well you know it'll be it'll be safer for mom if on Wednesday, we did a direct removal of the fetus, and on Thursday, we removed the uterus. That would be a problem. Okay. Because the, the direct assault on the fetus on the Wednesday is an abortion. The direct assault, again, the indirect assault, which is the removal of the uterus, is different. Abortion is a direct assault upon the fetus not indirect right so 
that would be a case where you would not want to have one on Wednesday and one on Thursday. Now again, another complicating factor here. What if the mother is, let's say, five months pregnant and this happens? And if she waits, let's say, two or three weeks, possibility for viability is then increased. That would be talking to your doctor about this and figuring out, okay, you know, how dangerous is it to wait two or three weeks here? If it's very dangerous, you just go through with the procedure. If the doctor's determination is, well, you could wait two weeks here, and then we can induce labor, have the child, put it in an incubator, and hope that things work out, that's another complicating factor. So it is, it's complicated. Now, on the same token, if the mother decides that she wants to lose her life bring this child to term, that's her choice, and she is not morally obliged not to do that. If she wants to have this child, knowing that it'll kill her, the waiting, you know, to do this, she can do that. In fact, Saint, Saint John Amola did just that. She had a disease that could have that could have killed her by being pregnant, having an abortion, having the um, power moved. She didn't do that. She died. Her daughter was born, and became a doctor herself actually afterwards. So the mother has an option here. She can either have the procedure done which will save her life, will lose the baby, or risk her own life being lost, the very good possibility of that happening, for the sake of having her child be born. It's a very complicated factor. So again, this is a case where you talk to your doctor about this and figure out what is the proper route. So we get principles here. I'm not a physician, I'm not gonna give you guys the, 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 the medical answer here, but these are principles. Now again, it's not that this is gonna to happen to you guys all the time, hopefully it won't happen at all. But it's good to know these things because even in debate with people about this kind of stuff, it's good that we have a real, that it, the church is not saying in every case, the, the, the life of the fetus is valued over the mother. That is not what the church teaches. And it's very important that we know that because it's a major criticism against the church. So it's good that we have a sense of this, all right? All right. Another issue regarding pregnancy is, and, and a challenge here, difficulty, is ectopic pregnancy. Okay. Now we've seen a large increase in this over the last 40 years or so. According to the CDC, 1970, there were 4.5 ectopic pregnancies per 1,000. Today, the number has jumped to 19.7 per 1,000. That's a four times, almost five time increase. So why? The CDC attributes this to the greater occurrences of chlamydia and other STDs that can and do scar the fallopian tubes. The sensitive lining of the tube, known as the endosalpinx, uh, is affected, I guess, by these STDs. And there's a much greater possibility then of causing an ectopic pregnancy. What happens in this case, essentially, fellas, is the, the uh, fetus attaches itself to the lining of the fallopian tube instead of descending down into the uterus. If it grows in the fallopian tube, it will hemorrhage, and a mother could, could literally bleed to death. So it's very important that we have a sense of what's going on here. So 
how do we handle the situation? Well, a few alternatives. The first is taking a careful, medically supervised approach. 40 to 64% of all ectopic pregnancies result death of the child in a fallopian tube, and they can be removed without there being any moral calculus. Once, once, once the baby is dead, it can be removed without there being anything more to be evaluated. But should it be determined the fetus is growing and opposing a threat, a doctor can perform a salpingectomy with a part of the fallopian tube that has a fetus attached to it is removed, tube is then reattached and sutured. The difficulty with this is the trauma to the fallopian tube can cause infertility in the woman. So there are trade-offs when you do this. Well, some doctors propose a thing called a salpingostomy. Oh, big, big terminology here, right? A salpingostomy removes not the tube, but the fetus. So now some theologians say you're simply taking a diseased fetus and removing it from the fallopian tube to, you know, the lab or whatever, or it's going to die anyway. That's, that's a bit complicated because some say that a direct assault against the fetus is a type of abortion and can't be chosen. So it really becomes a, a really um, difficult issue. Over the last few years, these doctors that are incredible what they can do now are what they call embryonic rescue, where the embryo is removed from the fallopian tube through salpingostomy and then attempted to be implanted in the uterus. At current time, this has never been successful. But the hope is that maybe as science improves, as neonatal care improves, that can be done. Uh, but as far as I know at this point, that has not been able to be done successfully um, at the current time. But we have to reject yeah, you categorical... No, you just answered my question. I was going to say, like, no matter what they do, an entitled pregnancy is uh, a non-viable pregnancy. So, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, whether it's trying to save the, you know, the, you know, the mother or trying to save the fetus, um, n nothing that I know of is, is, you know, has been salient to, to do that. Yeah. I just read a little bit of some of the research about, you know, about them trying to do these different things, but nothing yeah. that I've read has been, has been possible yet. But no, these guys are wizards, so I, I don't doubt that at some point you're going to be able to figure this out because I, I am amazed at what you guys already can do. So I don't doubt that at some point in the future, um, it could be possible to, to do this. So sure it'll happen. Yeah. Listen, I mean, I am, I am, um, in awe, frankly, of what is, what doctors are able to do today in some of these very difficult and complicated situations. So I don't doubt, you know, it's amazing how in the last hundred years, this is unbelievable statistic last hundred years, Medical science has advanced more than the previous thousand years. I mean, it's an incredible thing. In 1900, life expectancy was 40 years old in the developing world, lower in the non-developing world. Now it's 82. That number 40, life expectancy, for centuries remained the same. But in the last hundred years plus, what has been accomplished is, is amazing. Reading about it, about the, um, 
1918, Spanish flu, which actually happened in Kansas. I'm not sure it was Spanish flu, but it began in Kansas. But anyway, um, they were saying that Thanksgiving in 1918, people had parades, they had they traveled, they had all kinds of social events, and it became a super spreader event. Uh, in Philadelphia, they had their typical parade, I guess, in the city of Philadelphia, and thousands turned out for it. And days later, they had huge spikes of the flu cases in, in Philadelphia and other major cities because there's no sense of masks, of distancing, of therapeutics. It doesn't exist. And estimates probably are, are lowballing it that 700,000 people in America died from the Spanish flu. So we've seen how as awful as the numbers are right now in the U.S., and this is I me, mean, it's tragic and it's horrendous what's going on right now. But I, 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 I strongly believe that masks, distancing, a lot of that stuff has helped to keep the numbers from becoming much worse than it possibly could have become. So we'll see. I was a little bit concerned seeing over the weekend on Sunday, two million people flew on Sunday. The scenes from Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix were like the middle of February before the pandemic even started. There's no way people are not going to get sick from that. So I, I am concerned about this, the possible spike um, in COVID after Thanksgiving break or Thanksgiving uh, holiday. So we'll wait and see what happens. But it's definitely concerning um, to see that. But people, you see, yeah, go ahead. They were saying, I, I saw a couple things related about air flying. They actually said the way, they, the way the air flows in airplanes, it flows from the ceiling down, mm-hmm. and they use the same carpet filters that hospitals use. Right. So it's actually the flying an airplane, it's actually safer than to be in a hospital bed. I don't think that it's a matter of the airplane itself. I think it's a matter of the, <laughs> the airports no. being close, close you know, quarters in the airport. The airports um, are empty, Father. Literally empty. There's... There's literally no one in the airports. It's it, it, it it's big numbers, but it's such tiny numbers. I mean, I literally on a normal year I'm doing 75, 80,000 miles a year. I'm doing none, and my friends that still are are like sending me photos. The places are empty, and you're right about the airplanes. New aircraft, all the air circulates from the engines alongside your seat through through N95 quality filters. Um, the air on I'd rather be on an airplane. Than I'd rather be wow. in, like, okay. No, this is pop and shop. Uh, okay. I would, I would, I'm not a doctor, but I do fly well, a lot. No, well, actually, Chris, it's interesting because there was a thing that came out last week that the most most likely place to catch COVID is a supermarket, actually. So, actually it's like the rules go away in supermarkets. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, this whole thing is just, it's just a mess. Yeah, it, it is. Really is. The, pro- the, the biggest problem we have is our own narcissism mm. that we think that we can do what we want despite the fact that people are telling us what we should do. Mm. Um, so I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with people, you know, no masks, masks on their chin, you know, coming into areas where, you know, there are either poor ventilation uh, and, you know, crowded, you know, crowded situations. And you can't talk to these people because then it becomes like, you know, it becomes a violent encounter. Who the needs that? Right. I mean, right. it's, it's ridiculous that, you know, people just can't follow directions. 
It just can't follow directions. So, I mean, but that's I, I, that's, I, that's our biggest problem. I think that's a, a it's unfortunate to judge that way because I think the, the the there's just no good facts coming out. You have you have the politics in the middle that are creating, you know, quasi facts. And so I, you know, some you know, there's as many reports saying masks are helpful but not great, and as, as there are saying that man, I wear a mask. I'm not saying that I'm a, a no masker, but um, let's be really careful because. There's so much misinformation. There's so much politics behind this that it's very difficult to judge other people because they're getting they're getting facts from different spots than other people are, and they're not all facts. None of it's facts. No one. No, really I, well, I, no I, that's not true. Oh, I'm not going to argue about that, but I can tell you that. No, no, you have, you, you definitely know what no, you're wearing talking about. Wearing that. a mask, wearing a mask, decreases the ability of transmitting and getting COVID by a significant degree. So, and, and it's not a big deal to wear a mask. No, I'm not. I'm just saying. I'm not arguing with you that I wear a mask. I'm not. I know you're not. I'm telling you that wearing a mask is, at this point, an altruistic endeavor. And that's what we should be doing. Everybody. Of course. I'm telling you, though, though, before we judge people, you have to also it's listen not, to I'm not judging. I'm not judging. I'm saying oh, you should be wearing a mask. It's a, it, you know, and it should be a mandate. It should be a mandate in your head. If it's not mandated by society, it should be an altruistic event in your head that says, you know what? I don't want to transmit something to somebody else, and I don't want to get something from somebody else. So wearing a mask is a very simple thing to I, prevent I, this. But and it's, and it's you, have, you have you have reports not just on the major networks saying that. Masks don't prevent anything. They do. I I like them because it makes people realize that we have to be careful. That's the reason I wear it. But you know, the the when you look at the particulation, the size, and the, and the types of masks, unless you're in 95, you're getting very little or any protection from it. That's oh, no, you're absolutely. I'm sorry, you're absolutely wrong. And uh, 95. I'm telling you the fact. I'm not arguing with you. I don't know. You got to be really careful. See, I know you don't. I know. I know you don't know. That's that what I'm saying. What is N95 absolutely reduces. I'm working in the hospital, brother. I, I, I'm telling you. First of all, it's N95s absolutely reduce the spread. Of course they do. Okay? I, I, I think face shields and everything listening. else. You're not listening to me, but I'll, I'll let you continue. You're not listening. All right, I think, no, I, I don't need point, to continue. I think, the, right, I think the point is wearing of a mask, something all of us need to do right now to keep ourselves and other people safe. I think all of us agree on that principle. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think we're in agreement. My only problem is that there's no good facts out there. There's so many voices out there that confuse. That's very. I just, I'm just not a big fan of 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 judging when other people have other facts or other information coming to them. It's a confusion out there, and I absolutely believe that a healthcare workers are going to have a more knowledge on it than anyone else. But I just don't like to arbitrarily point at people like they're the double incarnate because they have a different beliefs than I do. Because no, I was saying that. I think we're just saying that right now it seems that, as Anthony is saying, that mask wearing has uh, definitely been a reason for... Definitely do. Yes, yes, I right. agree. So, if you're out there, folks, wear a mask. That's that's kind of the biggest... You know, you have a comment to make, or do you kind of just... You had your hand raised before, Peter. I thought you had your hand up. Is there anything you want to say or no? Peter, your hand was raised before. Anything you want to say or... I'm just showing my mask. Oh, okay. I, I don't want to get political. 
But unfortunately, it was made political. But they came out and said that if the country was informed back in the beginning of February to wear masks, over 100,000 lives could have been saved. And that, again, the masks... All right, so you know what? I don't want to get I don't want to get sidetracked here with with politics. You know, listen, whether it's true or not, I don't want to get it myself. I don't want to get this <laughs> into a policy discussion here tonight. Um, but you know, obviously, the biggest thing is always agree that if you're out there, folks, just put on a mask. It's not that difficult to do. All right, there's a lot of difficulty though. I can. Not with the mask. I mean, I think everybody's in agreement on the mask, but, you know, but um, just as a by way of example, my son was in college. He goes to school in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. He was coming home for Thanksgiving. But the way a lot of the colleges are working now, Father, is they're not sending people home for Thanksgiving and then coming back and then going home. For, they don't want all that travel. So they come home at Thanksgiving and they're home until the middle of right of January, which is wonderful, I think. It's a great idea. It's but anyway, in order for him to come home to New York from Tennessee, uh, in order to avoid 14 days of quarantine at Thanksgiving time, you know, when you want to be with your family and everything, he had to have within 72 hours of his departure this Saturday, a COVID test, a negative COVID test down there in Tennessee. Incredibly difficult to get that test done and to get results. It was... I won't, I won't waste time, but it was an amazing, uh, an extraordinary uh, feat to, to get that accomplished. And now he has to go tomorrow, which is the fourth day since his return. He's required to go tomorrow to get retested here in New York. The average wait time at the clinic down the road from us here in Eastchester is between four and five and a half hours. It's not an easy thing. I know we all have to do it, but there's a it's a lot of difficulties involved to more than just wearing the mask. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the ways of ameliorating that, well, maybe if you can, and with diff- not with your sign now, because it's too late, but in a few, to make an appointment, if you can, at the clinic a couple of days in advance, you can do that. Couldn't do it. Hey, Paul, wow. Paul, go online to pixel P I X E L. It's what, uh, the university of Miami uses with all the students. My son goes there mm-hmm. and they deliver it in a day. And it takes, drop it off FedEx and you'll have the results within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it, is yeah, it a home test or? It's a test, yeah, COVID test. Okay. All yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, the testing is the, one of the most important things that we have to get ourselves you know, better with, as Anthony was saying before. Because Lord knows right now, it's one of the things that we have to get ourselves, people got to be um, aware of what they're carrying or what they're not carrying. Well, getting back to the happiness of death the fetuses in uterine cancer situations much more joyous topic to cover um when it comes to the uh having pregnancy what we can ever approve of is the administration of a drug called methotrexate which essentially dissolves the tissue which attaches the embryo to the fallopian lining of fallopian tube because it can damage the cellular lining of the of the embryo as well so in this case, the best thing to do is self-ejectomy, the removal of the, of the part of the tube that has the fetus um, attached to it. If it's already dead, which happens most times, as Anthony was saying before, not viable, then you can remove it after death uh, has taken place. So, but again, you know, what this points to is we're not talking here about the child versus the mother. I think oftentimes in the abortion debate, 
That's how our opponents like to frame it. It's the child or it's the mother. We reject that lineation because it is not a binary thing. We are as much worried about the care of the mother as we are about the child. So in these cases prove that. When there is a difficult situation, we value both lives equally. So when our opponents say, well, you guys are anti-woman, you're misogynists, you have to be able to come back and respond to them properly because this is a major thing. And as deacons, as men who are going to be clergy, don't think we're not going to challenge you on this because they still do um, in a variety of, of formats and different, different situations. So just a bit of a heads up when it comes to having a sense of it. You know, terminology, actual wording, that's not for you to have to worry about that. But the principles of this are what should be of concern to us learning all these things. All right. Moving on, looking at the issue of where there is a possibility of sterilization as a motivation, that becomes a bit of a challenge. So one of the issues is a woman who has a severely damaged uterus where she would not be able to ever carry a child to term because she would not be able to because it's impossible because the uterus is that badly damaged could it be removed the, the um congregation doctrine of the faith said yes it could be because she can't carry a child to term it would be impossible it is not an act of sterilization if she can't carry a child to term to begin with a different situation, though, is a woman whose uterus is um, could, in fact, sustain pregnancy. But there could be a risk to the mother if she, in fact, does have a child. In that case, the uterus cannot be removed because now it's a direct act of sterilization where it's being removed purposely to not allow her to be able to... Uh, carry a child or to be able to have a pregnancy. So in that case, a couple should be diligent in using NFP, being extraordinarily careful to prevent pregnancy from happening, to be able to, you know, just to be careful when it comes to that situation. These are not easy things, but there is a distinction when it comes to the issues regarding pregnancy and, um, and birth and sterilization. These are kind of complicated factors that can in fact uh, occur today. All right. All right. Moving on. Some interesting kind of case studies. Nothing that it's not necessarily real world stuff, but kind of interesting questions here. Is it moral for parents to choose the sex of their baby? I don't think it's moral. You don't think so? If you use natural planning methods, perhaps. Well, it's okay. so different than. If you use NFP or you use uh, natural ways to, to increase the likelihood of sex of a child, if that's possible, I don't know. Okay. Then yeah, I would say it's, it's, there's no issue there. But if it's if you're using some kind of medical procedure to, to do it, I would suggest that that's more immoral. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Are there other thoughts? Moral or immoral to choose a sex of your baby? Well, can you think of any reasons why choosing the baby sex would be important? China. Well, I mean, that's, it is. That's, not really. It is. It isn't. 
Well, what if you're what if you are living on, let's say, living on a farm, and you need to have more male workers to help you with the hard work of farming? Oops. And yet, it's So, is so how about Arianism? Was that good too? Yeah. No, it was not good too. Exactly. But, I, yeah. but the point the point is that you can't use anything that would be, um, as Chris was saying before. That would be like infantile fertilization, IVF, stuff of that nature to kind of create your own sex of the baby. But uh, it is not intrinsically evil to, for certain principal reasons, again, working on a farm or whatever, as long as the baby's, you want a boy and you have a girl, let's say, you don't treat the child as a girl less because she's a girl. But there could be a reason why, why parents might want to say, hey, you know what? It might be beneficial for us to have a boy or a girl, depending upon what they may um, what they may see. So I don't know. Now, I don't know what Chris is saying about um, ways of increasing likelihood of having a boy. Hey, if um, a wives' tale, or if that's uh, I saw one of those ridiculous shows where they did something with a centrifuge, and there's a mass density of the different sperm, and they could they they, they could increase the. It was something about the new ways that they're trying to people are trying to fix gender. And I was like amazed, and I was like, "That just doesn't sound right." Yeah, you know, and that, yeah, and I'm I think that's one of the, right. you know, it's not a matter of, if, you know, I think that Anthony's point that is probably almost always the wrong thing to do, but it's, but it's not um, intrinsically evil. But there could be a reason, a legitimate reason, why why parents may want to say, "Hey, better for us to try to have boy or girl as long as, regardless of what sex is born, the child is treated equally with dignity." And with respect, all right. All right. Another issue. I, I, I was a little confused by the way you worded the question. If you said, and, and what you said was, is it moral for the parents to choose the sex of their child? Mm -hmm. I think maybe the better way to phrase it is, it moral for the parents to desire the sex of the child? Fair point. Fair point, George. That's a good point. Thank you. That's that's. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. That's yeah. I think the issue of choosing it is where it becomes a problem because so often choosing it becomes a medical procedure done in a lab with IVF to you know make sure that the proper sex of the child is uh, is determined in that factor. So fair point. Fair point. All right. Along the same lines, is it appropriate to have another child? with part of the reason for that being to benefit an existing child. So for example, what? what? Go ahead, who's in it? I'm gonna say for the kidneys and so forth. Well, <laughs> wouldn't be, yeah, I mean, I would be, yeah, or let's say that the blood from the umbilical cord, uh, bone marrow donation, stuff of that nature. Kidney might be a little more complicated because it's more of an organ that's important for the body to, to you know, to be healthy. But it is moral under very strict circumstances to have a child with, with part of the reason being to help an existing child who has some uh, medical complications. However, if they're serious, where it could jeopardize the life of the new child, that would always be off the table and immoral uh, to do. Because then it becomes an issue of creating a child for spare parts. And that, of course, is abhorrent and always wrong. 
other problem is, you know, you have to be sure that a child who is being who is being conceived, if they're going to find out they were part of their being born was to help their brother or sister, they realize that they weren't conceived simply as a donor child, because that could be a serious issue, which could cause um, some psychological trauma to a kid if they think that they were born only for the purpose of being, you know, a spare tire for their brother or sister. So important to be uh, aware of those things. Again, these are not real things you would find coming up in ministry, I don't think. But the kind of questions that are being asked by some moralists with um, some kind of uh, idea today. So, interesting question. Now, talking about the issue of spare parts, we get to the whole concept here of stem cells. Now, there is an enormous amount of dishonesty in the media and popular culture that would have one believe that if just enough money were given to it with the ethical reins taken off, it would cure like every disease under the sun in like a couple of years. Now, that's ridiculous, obviously. And the science does not bear that out. So they look at the church as the anti-science boogeyman. And we say, well, don't do this, this is wrong. And they say, well, the church is trying to hold back science. We're anti-science, we're anti-facts. You know, we're science deniers, whatever term they want to use to um, criticize us today. However, the binary choice of science versus religion is ridiculous because the church is not and never has been anti-science. The church and science operate on the same two basic principles. The first principle, the world, the universe is not God. We're not pantheists. And because the world and the universe is not God, it can be experimented upon. It can be studied. If it were God to experiment or, you know, like try to get studies on God that were like, you know, intrusive, would be sacrilegious. So the world, the universe is not God. The second principle, the world and the universe are observable. They have laws that are inscribed into them and they are discoverable. Because there's order in the universe. There's an intelligence behind the order. Think about it. At sea level, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, whether you're in America, Canada, Guam, or anywhere else. It's the same law anywhere you go. Gravity operates the same way. Drop an object, it falls to the ground. So there are certain laws that are simply inscribed in the universe and they are discoverable. And we say as believers, they're discoverable because there's an intelligence behind it. It is a major leap of faith to think that there is no intelligence with the incredible design we see in the universe, especially the way in which our planet is able to sustain intelligent life. 
you know, bacteria is life. So if a planet somewhere else has bacteria, it has life, but not intelligent life. It's very different. We are in what's called the Goldilocks zone of the universe, where everything, in terms of the oxygen we breathe, the temperature, the sun's distance from us, all of these, it's incredible. And the possibility is not one in a billion. It's one in like 140 points after a billion. It's an insane number that any scientist would say it is madness to try and make that become like, well, by accident, this happened. That is just not how things operate. I mean, that's not how we, we view complicated and complex structures. Complex structures implied a designer. So for us looking at it, the whole idea of intelligent design obviously springs from this idea of a designer behind the universe. It's funny, a number of years ago, um, the late scientist Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking said he was an atheist because he could not believe that a God who created the universe, that a God who created all these structures, would care about the minutia of his life. It made no sense to him. Pope Benedict said, it is precisely because God cares about the minutia of our life that makes him great. God has no need of us, and yet he chooses to get himself involved in our life. The logic of the incarnation as we approach Advent, as we approach Christmas, important to meditate on that reality, that God gets involved in the messiness of the experience of humanity and all of its complexity and all of its craziness. So there is not a science versus religion battle. However, one may say, well, wait a minute, doesn't science teach us, doesn't astrophysics teach us the Big Bang created the universe? Isn't that what it, you know, what created the uh, universe? Well, perhaps, perhaps, but it may, it may be interesting to somebody the person who proposed the Big Bang Theory was a man named George Lemaitre, an astronomer and professor of physics who happened to be also a Catholic priest. So a Catholic priest, French priest, was the one who first put forth the idea of the Big Bang Theory, for whatever that scientific reality is worth. Secondly, the first person to propose the Earth revolves around the Sun was not Galileo, it was Copernicus, again, a Catholic priest. Now, additionally, Gregor Mendel, in 1865, was an abbot in Austria who established a principle of heredity, which became the modern genetic theory that we have today. So. These are but examples of the history of people of faith being informed by their faith to get involved in the sciences. About six years ago, a Jesuit brother, uh, Guy Castelmagno, was an astrophysicist. And this Jesuit brother was awarded the prestigious Carl Sagan Award in science because of his work with, with, uh, with meteors. So again, 
His physical, no, the, 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 the scriptures is not how the heavens go. It's how to go to heaven. But that does, yeah, that does not mean that our faith does not inspire us to get involved in the sciences, to study the incredible creation that God has given us. Pope St. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, spoke often about science and religion. And Pope John Paul II said that science and religion, science and faith, faith and reason are like two wings of a dove soaring to the truth. Both faith and reason, science and faith are necessary to help us come to the truth. Faith without reason is superstition. Reason without faith becomes a cold, unethical thing. You need both. And humanity is better off for it. There's a great story about, in France, about 150 years ago, a young French atheist walking down the street one day. He's an old man praying the rosary. And being young and obnoxious, he stops. And says, the old man, come on, the rosary? That myth, you believe that kind of nonsense? The old man says, well, yes, young man, I believe in this stuff. So I believe in science. I'm a man of science. In fact, I'm currently enrolled in the Louis Pasteur School of Science. Oh, man, that's, that's nice. I'm Louis Pasteur. <laughs> he says, well, who are you? He says, I'm Louis Pasteur. <laughs> so it really shows us that Louis Pasteur, now, none of this, none of this means that God exists, it's not a proof for God's existence, it's not a proof for whatever. All it means is the argument that religion and science are involved in a zero-sum game where one wins and one loses simply is not true. The church is worried for the dignity of the human person. The vulnerable, the marginalized, having their dignity disrespected. So we have to be very careful about that. So, when it comes to stem cells, regarding fetal stem cells, the procedure is the collection or the harvesting of 30, 34 cells developing into the baby's organs in the first week of life. They are taken then, harvested, and then it ends the life of the baby. Now, the supporters of embryonic stem cell research will say, well, the fact is, embryonic stem cells are what is called pluripotent, which means they can develop into many different kinds of cells, whereas adult, adult stem cells cannot. Now, adult stem cells are multipotent, but they are not pluripotent. Nevertheless, it's still a possibility for developing into different kinds of, 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 of cells. So not totally impossible here. As a part of embryonic stem cell research, we'll say, well, look, you know, if we take them from frozen embryos, the embryos that were discarded after IVF was successful, and parents said, you know, freeze them, and I'll back later on. Well, if they're taken from frozen embryonic stem cells, therefore, you cannot die anyway, might as well use it for, for good. But that reasoning is very dangerous. That same reasoning just takes stem cells 
do a procedure on a person on death row. They're going to die soon anyway. Why bother? Or if someone's terminally ill, well, you can do something with them even. A test, a procedure, a you know, scientific you know, um, experiment. You know, they, they're going to die soon anyway. So just do it. So we see how quickly, how quickly it evolves, how quickly the vulnerable are targeted. It is really important that we always are careful when it comes to saying, well, this is going to happen anyway. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The gospel yesterday tells us this. Jesus said, you know, the hungry, the naked, the thirsty, the prisoner, the stranger, these are the ones he identifies with. Now, Christ the King is not seen in grandeur and power. Christ the King is seen in the hospice bed in ultrasound image. Christ the King is not found in glory. He's found in the ghetto, in the hospital. That's where Christ the King is seen. Because if we can't see Christ in the poor and the marginalized, we can't see him in the Eucharist. He's hidden. He's as hidden in the poor and the marginalized and the sick as he is in the Eucharist. And if we can't see Christ in one, we can't see him in the other either. And the real crisis today of dignity being compromised. So a little, a little homily, sorry, sorry, but you know, I'm kind of getting a little bit excited tonight. So <laughs> bear with me. But reality is it's important because you know the culture of death that's around us has to be strongly and, and consistently um, challenge. Otherwise, if we can't do it, fellas, who's going to, right? Anyway, that's kind of one of the... Yeah, yeah. Quick question. Yeah. In the reading assignment, did I read it right that the church doesn't know what to do with all these frozen embryos and things? They're not sure that's what correct. to do with them? So I mentioned last week that there is a debate going on between moralists about what happens here. Some good moralists have what's called the theory called snowflake babies. Not young, woke college students, snowflakes, but snowflake babies, which refers to the idea of these babies that are, that are embryos, that are part of IVF treatments, where a parent has three, four, five, six embryos that are fertilized. First, one or two take, are implanted, and the rest are then frozen. Some moralists say, well, it's an act of adoption to remove the embryos in the freezer where they're being kept and plant them then in the fallopian tube of the uterus of, I guess uterus, uterus of um, a woman who wants to have a child. It's adoption. Other moralists say, wait a minute, it's not her child. Therefore, it's surrogacy, which is always wrong. So is a moral object adoption or is it surrogacy? Adoption is laudable. It's a great thing. It's virtuous. Surrogacy is not. So the question that a lot of moralists are having right now is which one? Is it a good moralist on both sides of the issue or debating it? 
therefore, a Catholic couple is free to make that determination. The challenge here, John, is in many ways, in the gay life issues especially, the science has so outpaced the ethics for playing catch up right now. Things have moved so fast and the church is hesitant to make magisterial statements. Because in case, these are complicated issues. And the church knows her competency. Her competency is not in medical science. Her competency is theology. And so it's very difficult for us to say, well, this is how it's going to be. Now, personally, I think it's surrogacy. It can't be done. I also think that the embryo has been kept alive by a freezer could be seen as extraordinary means. Personal opinion, I could be wrong. But I have my own kind of take on this. But the reading is right. You still don't have the determination in any kind of um, real clear way about what to do with these, uh, these snowflake babies. Father, um, yeah. may I chime in on this one? Yeah, sure. Um, my, uh, my youngest niece actually was a snowflake baby. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, in, that, in that instance, the situation was um, uh, regarding her, her the, the embryo, was that uh, I guess, like you had said, that you know another couple had been struggling to have children, so several were were um, fertilized and frozen. Uh, but once they had one that, that took and they had the child, it was like they were done with those those frozen embryos. The thing is, is that the procedure would be, if they don't want to pay to keep them frozen, is to destroy the, uh, the fetuses. So um, the ability to adopt one um, is a chance to save one of them. Um, at the time, my brother and his, his wife chose to adopt a fetus, and it actually was an adoption. They had to go through a, like a complete adoption uh, for this, um, for, the, for the fetus. And, uh, and it was just a, you know, a one chance thing. It wasn't like if, if, if the uh, pregnancy hadn't been successful that they would get the other one that was there it was uh, this is the one that you're adopting this child and they only give it a certain amount of time after that they're destroyed or at least in this particular case i don't know if that's always the case right um but she was i mean the pregnancy went went smooth um so my brother and his wife they 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 did know the details about the other parents um, because it had to be an adoption there was you know involvement there um, my niece is is uh, being raised knowing that she is adopted but that she was actually carried by my sister-in-law um, and uh, unfortunately my, my my brother passed away a few years ago but um but it's to my my sister-in-law um 
they're so happy. She's so happy that they did that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a tough thing. She actually had to. She uh, had to get. Um, you know, she had, she met with her her pastor at the time, and uh, to to get guidance on whether or not. And it was like you were saying that it was uh, there was no official right. thing in the church about it. So, but I I, I believe that what they were guided with by their pastor at the time was if this fetus isn't adopted, it's going to be destroyed. And uh, so in this particular case, if you are able to do this, yeah. um, it was like the, the surrogacy became, adopted. you know, it's, it's not really the issue anymore. It was, we're saving, we're giving this child a chance to live. Um, now, if that's not always the situation that they're going to be destroyed if nobody does, right? right. And I mean, that's an entirely different. Listen, I think that's what the church has been not has not made any kind of formal declaration yet. Yeah, because of stories like that. Yeah, and until we have any better guidance on this, any better sense of this, the church wants to give people their conscience informed. And again, for your sister or law brother to go to the priest and ask, that's in, that's pretty impressive. Good for them to do that. But um, you know, the good conscience you do that. At this point, there was nothing the church has said that has made that you know that makes it a problem, a problematic issue. So um, and again, it's, it's situations of that nature they're talking about that purposely, um, where the church has not made any kind of formal declaration on this issue just yet. So it's an important distinction. Thank you for mentioning that. It's always important to have some real world situations involved in the theory that we're talking about in class and times. Thank you for sharing that, Vincent. Father? Uh, yeah. Vince, that's a great story. And and uh, the question I asked, though, is if, do we risk when we make something a moral act on one side, make the immoral act justifiable? Meaning, do... Well, no, that's why the church has not said... Whether, it's whether be, that's my point. It's got to be an impossible question because now people can say, well, that's okay because people will adopt the embryos we don't use mm-hmm. and yeah. well i mean look that becomes that becomes an issue of whether the church is kind of staying on the sidelines that's the right thing right, in, in right. My opinion, i don't know if i'm right or wrong but but the um but all of a sudden that creates justification for the initial you know test tube fertilization and, and freezing which i think the church has said is not no we would say we would say that look the issue of snowflake babies comes as a result, okay, the result of what is not morally appropriate. But the, but the, but, but the, the fertilization the, of eggs and freezing them is not accepted by the church, right? Or am I right. wrong? That's right. not. But, that, but the, actual, the issue of is it surrogacy or adoption becomes a separate moral issue, a separate yeah. moral act. So yeah. just because the actual creation of them was immoral does not mean that the adoption becomes immoral as well no of course i agree with that my point is but then when that occurs now you're starting to help justify an immoral act because the people that are that are obviously now living within the church teaching will use that as a justification as well we can do it because it's actually we're fine on the other end because we can adopt the children it's a very difficult i, I don't well, have an answer yeah. i don't agree with and it's, well i think part of it is that you know if it was a matter of Every one of these embryos would be adopted by a loving parent, like Vincent's yeah. brother and sister-in-law. Now we much more, but the, but the fact that there are tens of thousands of these yeah. that are consigned to an impossible fate. 
and that becomes the real crux of the, of the, of the difficulty, Chris. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, listen, it's one of the more it's one of the most complicated issues that we're facing today. And the church, again, is reluctant to say anything about it definitively because of how complicated the situation gets. But um, we would never say that, well, because some couples that are caring and loving are going to adopt, therefore the issue of IVF is declared less immoral or declared moral because of it. You would never want to make that next step of, of judgment. In fact, the whole, the whole point is that this complicated issue would be avoided entirely if this wasn't happening. So, you know, and again, like I was saying last week, there were real serious problems where you have cases where IVF has they, they mixed up the, the donor egg and sperm and somebody else. I mean, it gets real messy. Um, there, there's, there are very legitimate reasons for avoiding IV, you know, the whole question of IVF. Um, and that was a little too involved with all the IDFs. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. So that becomes an issue. But speaking about issues of you know, moral, moral questions, we come back to the issue of human cloning. So this is always an interesting one. I'm not talking about you know, Star Wars things here, but this is um, this is cloning. And what happens in cloning, in terms of the science of it, in a very generic way, and I can't get into the specifics here, it's a procedure known as somatic cell nuclear transfer, all right? Which essentially is genetic material from the donor parent is placed into an egg from which the nucleus has been removed. When the new entity is properly assimilated, cell division begins and the new being is brought into existence. Identical to the younger than the donor himself or herself. All right. There are two kinds of cloning. Both are immoral. Therapeutic and reproductive. Therapeutic, reproductive. Therapeutic cloning essentially is the creation of a new person for spare parts and the problem here is even though you're going to exist this by an illicit and immoral means once that embryo is fertilized once that egg is fertilized you have a new distinct human being worthy of dignity and respect and the problem here is in therapeutic cloning they're being treated instead as spare parts. And once we treat humans as spare parts, where is the line drawn? It becomes a real serious problem. The second kind of cloning is reproductive cloning. Motives here are not as as clear. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if it was just me, but you were came in, you were in and out that whole discussion that you just did, the whole last thing about Therapeutic human cloning. Oh, not, I, was I not being clear, guys? Was I coming in and out of the. No, I can hear you. Maybe it was just. Okay. Yeah. So, again, therapeutic cloning, you can just kind of, George, just give him a little bit of a background here. Therapeutic cloning is essentially creating a person for spare parts. That's what it comes down to. Now, reproductive cloning, motives are less obvious here, but it seems to be a case where a person 
is interesting to see how they would have lived in a different circumstance. It's the same person, same genetic material, same talents, presumably abilities. So curiosity. At this point, both of these things are not possible to happen in terms of creating somebody else. But where it has happened, though, in animals, remember Dolly the sheep a number of years ago, right? So with Dolly the sheep and other animals like that, serious health risks emerge. We've seen um, higher rates of death, deformity, disability. So it becomes a real serious problem. From the human standpoint, though, the clone would deprive the child of having the right to two biological parents, two parents, because they're being brought into existence with somebody else's, you know, skin cell in their arm or something, I don't know. But that's where it becomes a real major problem. Now, what's interesting is this. There are bans on reproductive cloning. However, there is therapeutic cloning that has been allowed in New Jersey, California, Rhode Island, Missouri, and Connecticut. All allow, at this point in the law, therapeutic cloning. The Jersey law that was signed into law in 2004 permits human cloning for the purpose of developing and harvesting human stem cells. Specifically, it legalizes the process of cloning a human embryo and then planting the clone into a womb provided that the clone is then aborted and used for medical research. Now, we should see right away how horrifying this is. What we're saying here is essentially create a new distinct human life for the purposes at the very beginning of life of creating it for spare parts and medical research. That is as horrifying, frankly. So we see some of the problems that emerge right away. Okay. So that's the issues of stem cells and cloning. So we turn from... You know, this is a problem I have in my own head. Um, so let's just say we're using stem cells for, you know, the betterment of man. Um, patients with, you know, you know, horrific spinal cord injuries that could potentially be cured and could walk again um, and other things, many other things. Um, and... And we're not doing it where we're aborting fetuses to, you know, potentially like farm stem cells for, you know, these patients. So we're not going to ever be able to get around the, the whole abortion issue um, um, unless something else, something happens. But the issue is, is that, you know, you have aborted fetuses, you have stem cells that are going to be wasted. You have... Um, Issues where, you know, when 
you know, women deliver babies, they, you know, they use umbilical cord, you know, stem cells and blood to, you know, do, you know, many different things. I'm not an expert in this, in, you know, in this area, but the issue is, is that, is that also something that, you know, should be, you know, um, maligned by the Catholic Church? No, so we no, so no. the issue of umbilical, you know, that, that, or any kind of, um, that, that's all totally appropriate. We, we actually encourage that to be used. Okay. Okay. Yeah, our only concern is when you have the issue of um, stem cells that have been derived from abortions or from these embryonic situations, that's where it is. But we, we absolutely uh, support the idea of adult stem cells, umbilical, uh, the, the blood, whatever, whatever is not the right. Whatever is not destroying life, we absolutely would encourage that. Definitely. Right. And my, my research has been that actually fetal stem cells used in animals have not been helpful, actually. It actually caused more problems than anything else. Whereas adult stem cells have, sh- have chosen, or a vocal cord, of the blood, have, show, have, have shown some promise in helping those that are paralyzed or disabled. So we, um, we would certainly uh, support, support that idea. Absolutely. Did that answer your question, Anthony? No, I, no, yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I guess just the question is, is that you know you have, you know, I, you know, God knows how many abortions there are throughout the whole country, right. and you know, within a day or within a year or whatever. My, my question is, is that if, you know, and believe me, I again, I'm not an expert in this area, but if you have these abortions, um. And there's an ability to bring a better life or, you know, something else for, for people that are living from these, from these abortuses. Is that something that is, I mean, is morally incorrect? Yes, because the, because the, the derivative of where it's coming from is the abortion itself. So even though we're saying, well, we're going to use a good coming out of this to help a person who is in a difficult, more you know, paralyzed, or whatever the case may be, because the source of it is the abortion itself. Um, again, again, there's some very, some very um, thorny moral uh, areas where you're saying, well, the abortion happened. We're going to use it for good. That would be. That would be. I. I would be very. Uncomfortable with that um, that kind of distinction. I see your point, Anthony. I really do, and I, and I understand where you're coming from. I get it, but um, but I just think that when we're talking about now, it's like, well, we're going to bring some good out of this because we can use it for yeah, a serious. That, that 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 wouldn't that somehow wouldn't apply or wouldn't like kind of you know if you can you know rationalize it into the principle of double effect. No, because the first principle will fail there, where the intrinsically evil act. Uh, okay. Yeah, I get it. Okay, I got it. Okay. All right. No, thanks. No, no, it's a, it's a really important. Thank you for asking. It's a very important distinction, and it shows where double effect um, that all four conditions have to be met. Because you're right. I mean, at face value, a person could say, "Hey, listen, this is already happening." But they become well, yeah, but the source of it is and again. This is even with cooperation with evil, it's different than vaccines because, again, the vaccine issue 
is it's remote. It happened, you know, years ago. So it's a different kind of a thing. So that's where you have to be careful about nuancing it a little bit. I get your point. But I think what should be done, if it can be done, is umbilical cord, placental blood, all of those things which are morally acceptable and can help people. We should be more attentive to being able to apply that for those that could use those things to help those that are in that are paralyzed or in difficult, you know, uh, medical situations. So, Father, can I? Yeah. Let me just ask one more question. Is, what, what about the case of a spontaneous abortion? So, you know, a woman comes in. Yeah, a spontaneous abortion. Can, what about that? Sure. Because there's no, it was not, it was not, it was not something which she uh, procured it. The baby simply is tragic. She had a miscarriage. So, um, in that case, it was not something which was. Because again, in that case, there's no direct action which caused the baby to die. It just happened because it happens. So that would be a case where you okay. could. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And we're going to see actually again the organ transplants. That principle is going to apply to organ transplant donors who have died. So that's the next topic this evening is the issue of organ transplants. So where the issue of stem cells and cloning were seen as problematic, organ transplants actually are seen as virtuous. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this. It says, organ transplants were in conformity with the moral law if the physical and psychological dangers and risks incurred by the donor are proportionate to the good sought for the recipient. Donation of organs after death is a noble and meritorious act and is to be encouraged as a manifestation of generous solidarity. It is not morally acceptable if the donor will legitimately speak it for him have not given their consent. It is furthermore morally inadmissible directly to bring about the disabling mutilation or death of a human being even in order to delay the death of other persons. Number 2296 of the Catechism. Number 2296. So, organ donation is a laudable thing. My parents live uh, part of the year in South Florida, in Naples. And Florida does not have uh, helmet laws, motorcycle, uh, motorcyclists. And the doctors down there refer to the motorcyclists as future organ donors. Donor cycles. Donor cycles, exactly. Because obviously, as we know, it can happen. You're in a motorcycle and you're not usually wearing a helmet. You're going to do an accident. The helmet can save your life. Why, if you're too cool to wear a helmet in Florida, you know, it can cause you to end your life, which is tragic and, and foolish. Um, but as Anthony's saying, donor cycles have been referred. So furthermore, on the idea of the morality of organ donation, Pope John Paul II wrote this in Evangelium Vitae. JP II wrote, over and above such outstanding moments, there is an everyday heroism made up of gestures of sharing, big or small, which build up an authentic culture of life. A particularly praiseworthy example of such gestures is donation of organs performed in an ethically acceptable manner with the view to offering a chance of health 
and even of life itself for the sick who sometimes have no other hope. Paragraph 86 of Evangelium Vitae. This is the first time that a papal teaching referred to organ donation as praiseworthy, not just justified. Now, as with any moral issue, there are principles that must be followed both for the donation of a non-vital organ or when it comes to a person donating after death. There must be a consent given to the donor or the next of kin in that situation. Okay. Now, a unique example involves donation of generative organs. And the issue here is, what about an ovary transplant? Here's the problem with that. In an ovary transplant, the eggs in the ovaries are from the donor woman, which means the child resembles her, not the woman they've been implanted into. So again, because there's an issue there of the marital act and the idea of parents giving everything, both their genital organs, their fertility, all of that, that becomes um, a, you know, a, a problematic issue when it comes to that. Now, the church is not taught definitively on that topic either. There are certain concerns there, but on this issue as well, the church has not taught definitively on this topic. Now, one possible, let's say you have a woman going in for chemotherapy, which could render her infertile. I read somewhere about the possibility of her having the ovaries or tissue from the ovaries removed, frozen, and then re-implanted. And apparently already happened with children conceived after. Now again, I read this, I'm not a doctor, I don't know the exact um, science of this, but the issue of her ovary being taken out, re-implanted, to avoid infertility from chemo or something of that nature would not be a problem in that kind of situation. So again, proper respect is always important here. Where it gets complicated, though, is the issue of a donation after death. So we ask ourselves, what qualifies as death? Now, for centuries, the cessation of voluntary cardiopulmonary function was what qualified as that stop breathing, your heart stopped working, you were dead. But the problem with this, though, was in the 1940s and 50s, with the establishment of respirators and you know life-sustaining functions, where the heart was kept beating, lungs kept pumping, the issue became, what about brain death? Is that a proper criteria? So Harvard, in 1968, developed a four-part brain death criteria to help doctors establish the possibility of brain death. What they said was, essentially, if the person has no uh, response to external stimuli, they're poked, they're prodded, nothing's no response, reflexes don't respond to any kind of a tapping or any kind of a movement, the pupils remain dilated, even with light shown into them. 
And a confirming factor is applying the EEG. If the EEG comes back without any kind of activity, the person then can be declared brain dead. But kept alive through a respirator or through uh, life support. So the brain death criterion, which a church accepts carefully, so it becomes an issue. When it comes to organ transplants, though, it's also important because the reality is after a certain amount of time, the loss of oxygen to different organs, the organs die and cannot be transplanted. So, for example, and they say when I read in the literature, the lungs can last up to one hour after the heart stops. The um, livers and kidneys, about 40 minutes. Uh, the heart can last up to 20 minutes. So there is a small time frame here where after the heart has stopped pumping, the, the lungs have stopped working, there is a time when organ donation can in fact take place. And so a brain death criterion, the person is brain dead, you're not waiting then for this cardiopulmonary um, distinction because the most stringent rules say that 20 minutes after the heart stops pumping is a point of no return. The person is going to be clinically dead, hard to stop working now. That's not giving them much time, actually no time at all, for organs, donate, organs to be donated. So a brain death criterion gives you some time then to be able to remove the organs that are so viable to be preserved and then placed eventually in somebody else. So one of the things to talk about is a non-heart-beating donor. In this case, a person who is brain dead but kept alive by machines remains connected to life support or into the operating room which is connected to them. In the operating room, they're turned off, the machines turn off, person dies, there's cardiopulmonary cessation, the organs are removed in the operating room with time to preserve the organs. So, what a possibility. Another possibility is a, is a drug that can be administered to the patient to keep the organs alive longer after death. But the problem with this is it could actually hasten the uh, coming of death upon that person happening quicker. So it becomes a little bit more of a complicated issue with those situations. So, I mean, look, these are all things that are interesting. I doubt any of us are going to face the specifics of this. And I think even after the doctors, like John and Anthony is our best bet when it comes to these determinations. But it's good for us to have a sense of this. So we're not coming into these situations completely you know, blind to what the church teaches and what is moral and immoral, right? Questions, comments, anything that's not clear that we want to talk about? Father, yeah. a, little, a little personal story. Sure. My mother died uh, 26 years ago. Uh, she had MS and at the end of her life, she, my father took care of her. And his father passed out in the bathroom. And when the paramedics came, they tried to jumpstart her, and mm -hmm. it didn't work. And I drove into the hospital, and the doctor comes out, great news, brought your mom back. Bad news, she's in a coma. So I 
grabbed the doctor to the side and said, you know, Doc, what are her chances coming back? He goes, you want numbers? He said, one in five billion. She'll bounce, she'll bounce back, but she'll be 10% of what she was. And I'm like, wow. She basically she couldn't dress herself, couldn't feed herself. So for six weeks, I went to the hospital, you know, twice a day with my dad. Mom was on a, she was in a coma on a ventilator. So finally after we got, because she didn't have a uh, living will or anything. So we had, I had to sit down with my, with my dad. My other siblings had to fill out a form, you know, to release her because she was at St. John's Hospital out in Smithtown on Long Island. And it turns out the weekend when they went to uh, run the, whatever they call it, the brain test, mm-hmm. they had to run three dozen, I think it was three dozen tests because the ventilator kept inter- interfering with the brain activity. Mm-hmm. But I said to them afterwards, so how do you know it wasn't active from day one? They're like, we don't. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, the only good thing was, was it was a nice, uh, like a transition for my dad because he was just totally lost, you know? Oh, sure. You know? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, you know, this, you know, all this, all this stuff about organ transplants and all these kind of complicated facts in the cold light of, uh, of class is very, very different than when it is, in, you know, in the hospital room itself with flesh and blood people that are dealing with these situations, you know? Good to have principles. Good to always be sensitive to the real world cases that we're going to come across, you know, in, um, in ministry. So a couple of notes about surgery, um, that O'Donnell makes in the book that was interesting. He highlights, um, the idea here of elective surgery and the morality of elective surgery. And he speaks first about elective appendectomy. And this would be a case where let's say a family member has uh, you know has an appendix, but their mother and father and sibling have all had appendicitis and had to have the appendix removed before a burst and cause sepsis. Question becomes: Can a person with elective surgery have the appendix removed even if it's not giving any kind of problems at this time? O'Donnell, in the book we read that we have, says that you would not do elective surgery because opening of the abdomen possible infections, other complications could could happen there. However, there are exceptions to this. If a person is traveling to a country where they would not have access to good medical care, they could have the surgery done because if they get sick over there, they could die. So that's part of the difference. Or if they're having a separate procedure done, opening the abdomen, they can get the doctors or with the appendix as well. There are exceptions to this, but elective surgeries are always going to be kind of looked at kind of carefully. Um, one of the more common situations today, it's coming more and more of an issue, it's even happening in public figures, is the issue of the removal of uh, the breast mastectomy, adult mastectomy, for a woman who was, was a history in her family of breast cancer. So this is morally acceptable. I mean, if, 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 if there's a genetic screening come back, there is a high risk of a woman getting breast cancer. It is morally acceptable for her to have mastectomy, to remove the breasts, and then using reconstructive surgery to renew the breast, to build up the breasts again after the surgery is done, to keep her safe from getting the possibility of breast cancer. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with that. The church is not against the idea of plastic surgery, actually. 
Um, so in certain cases, it's necessary. In certain cases, it's appropriate. Well, Pius XII, typically the Italian Society of Plastic Surgeons, 1958, Pius XII said, quote, there is no doubt that Christianity and its ethics have never condemned the appreciation and due care of physical beauty as morally wrong. Which means there is nothing wrong with a person having cosmetic or plastic surgery, provided within certain limitations here. Now, like everything else, it can be abused. If a person who has robbed the bank or has, you know, caused kind of a serious crime has surgery change their appearance to hide from the police, that would be immoral. But overall, there really is no problem the church has with the possibility of going through plastic surgery to improve one's physical appearance. All right. Now, on a separate topic, though, this is my own little aside here. Back to the idea of mastectomy for breast cancer. The more complicated issue would be a woman who finds out is predisposed to ovarian cancer. Now, personal story here. My mother, 26 years ago, was diagnosed with late third stage ovarian cancer. My mom was 50 years old at the time, and it was late third stage. She had surgery, and doctor removed tumors as of a frisbee out of her. She went through six months of taxol chemotherapy after the surgery. And it is a miracle that 26 years later, she is still with us and healthy and turns 76 next week. So for me though, you get ovarian cancer and seeing how lethal it can be. Her surgeon, Dr. Caputo, was the head ovarian cancer surgeon in the world. And in visiting her, he wouldn't, he wouldn't look her in the eye because so many patients he had with ovarian cancer would die. He would go in, he'd do his, he'd do his examination, do his, his little you know, conversation, but looking you in the eye, he couldn't do it because he, was, he lost many patients. Her doctor, Catherine Economos, who is still practicing but Economos um, is, is an incredible surgeon, doctor, oncologist who does incredible work. So we're grateful. So my issue is this. If a woman finds out she's predisposed to ovarian cancer, could she have a hysterectomy, rendering her infertile? And here's why I think it's not a problem. Most women, the average median age of ovarian cancer is 53. By that point, menopause is already set in. The chance of getting pregnant after menopause is very, very minimal. So I think that in that case, a woman who chooses to have a hysterectomy at that age to avoid possibility of ovarian cancer would not be acting immorally if they chose to uh, to do that. Again, personal thought, my own kind of uh, input here. 
I have no um, medical knowledge to back that up. No choice teaching on that. It's the thought that is interesting. Any uh, questions or comments about any of this surgery stuff or organ transplants? Not organ transplants, but um, <laughs> don't want to throw a fly into the ointment, but uh, the uh, LGBTQ issues. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, as a physician, uh, fortunately not me, uh, but uh, we're dealing with... Um, a lot of patients that come in, females that are gender non-specific, that you know want to have their breasts taken off, and <laughs> right. And I don't even tell you that you know to blow your mind even more. That when you take these breasts off, sometimes they have cancer in them, sometimes they don't. So it's a major, major issue, um, and because of our politically correct society, you know, if someone comes in and, and they determine that, you know, they are not female, they don't either they don't know or that they they, they identify as male mm -hmm. and they want these breasts taken off, then you're obligated to do it. Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean it's and the real, the real problem with that Anthony is that ten to fifteen years after you've had surgery studies show they regret having had the surgery done you're exactly right and what's going to happen in about 15 years from now you have a whole slew of people that have had gender reassignment surgery that are going to be a mess psychologically emotionally because these things can't be reversed in some cases so the, the psychological help they should have received earlier to help them deal with these issues, but instead they were affirmed in their in their confusion. Again, you know, body dysphoria, anorexia is body dysphoria also. No one would say to a young woman anorexic, listen, because you think you're 400 pounds, you know, you're 80 pounds, don't worry about it. I affirm you in that. That's great. No problem. We'd be horrified. Get them help. But right. if you dare to say anything about transgender, you're a transphobe, you're a bigot, you know, you're all, when the names begin coming out, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. They, they've lost the argument, they can call you names now, children do this, they call right. you names, because they can't argue principles, so instead, name calling happens. Exactly. And the problem is, is that this is happening with with people it's younger and younger i mean we're talking about adolescents that come in and ask for this surgery because they're confused about what they are and you know society actually pushes them to you know say hey if you don't know what you are then you need to express it and you need to you know go through whatever what whatever you think it is that you need to do to make you feel comfortable. Well, at 17 or 18, if I would have done that, I think I'd be dead or in jail by now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that we allow people that can't even buy a beer figure out what kind of gender they are and have, and have life-altering yeah. surgery. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And again, the, the we're going to see this in two weeks, talking about religious liberty and um, all these issues. But the reality is, the, if we say anything against this, it becomes a major, like you're, you're a transphobe, you're this or that. And the name calling simply illustrates they have no leg to stand on. They're simply calling you a name because they can't debate you on the facts. I know. Well, the, the, the unfortunate thing is, is that, you know, I work in two separate medical centers. At one medical center in particular, if you are on the wrong side of the, of the you know, of the line, I mean, you could, it's actually risky. You could lose your job. I believe it. Sure. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, it's, Anthony, it's to the point where the whole issue now, if a school determines that the home environment is not 100% supportive of the child's decision to, to, to transition or whatever the case may be, CPS can and does get involved in those situations. A guidance counselor can provide a child with hormonal therapy drugs without the parent's consent at 14 years old. Yeah, that's insane. That is insane. So, I mean, all these challenges, and the problem is there's no debate about it. Because if you try to debate about it, you're shouted down. And that becomes a problem. No, I know. I know. I don't know, man. We're going to see, again, we're going to see about two weeks from now, covering religious freedom. We're going to look at a lot of these issues in court cases, particularly in the whole issue of, of, of same-sex marriage. But we're going to see some of the difficulties that are already arising as a result of this. And, um, you know, to affirm people in what is wrong is against the scriptures, it's against reason, frankly. But uh, we see it happening all the time, all around us. Anybody else? Any other comments or thoughts before we finish up tonight? Good. So we have finished medical ethics. We're now moving into social ethics. So the reading assignment for the next two weeks is John Paul II wrote an encyclical, 1991. The name of it is Centissimus, Centissimus Anus, C E N. T-I-S-S-I-M-U-S, Anus, A-N-N-U-S. And the reassignment for next week is the first 30 paragraphs of that document. It's a real good synthesis of Catholic social teaching. We're looking at a lot of interesting topics. Can you, can you repeat that one more time? Centissimus what? Centissimus Anus. C-E-N-T-I-S-S-I-M-U-S, Centissimus Anus, A-N-N-U-S, you can get it right in the Vatican website and print it off uh, for yourself or read it online, either way. Okay. And it really, and it was written on the 100th anniversary of Leo XIII's document, Rerum Novarum. And Rerum Novarum of Leo XIII remains to this day the um, real central teaching on social ethics with the Catholic Church. John Paul II, on the centenary of that document, wrote this document to help to um, kind of refine what Pope Leo XIII said. And a lot of the issues we're going to talk about next two weeks, 
religious freedom, the economy, um, the market value of things, just war theory, uh, a lot of real timely topics as we come to the end of our semester. Two weeks more to go, guys, and we're done. Because the 14th is the final exam, which is not a class day, so I you should get an anthem at that point. Next Monday, I'll get to you guys next week some point, the final exam with the definitions and the essays. Take home test, so it should be difficult. And the essays are gonna be real world case studies applying principles we've learned to the individual case study. So, Peter? In the essays, how many words do we, you know, how big the response has to be there? You know, it, it, listen, I have to read 20 of these. So not, not long. Um, so, so I mean, not, just give me the answer to the question. You know, it's all, you know just, just answer what I'm asking you. Don't go into a long discourse on something else because when he asked me, I had to read, you know. I'm the Riley answer. No, no. Please, <laughs> God, no. I had him in class too. I know in class, I know his, I know his essays. So I no, you're fine. That's not what we're asking you to do. <laughs> Please. All right. Anything else, fellas? Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Have a great week. Enjoy yourselves. Be safe. Enjoy your families. I'll see you guys next Monday night. No need too much. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, John. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Father Thanksgiving. Wear your mask. It is uh, I put in the chat line a. Uh, a link. There's a very famous story. There's a famous company in Brazil that clones polo ponies. The most really? successful line of poly, polo ponies ever. At least he a great article, story on it too. Yeah, good.